This podcast is for information only and should not be considered legal advice. There is no representation that the legal services to be performed by LOCA are better than the services of other attorneys. There is no guarantee of the outcome. Success is rendered on a case-by-case basis. Welcome back, everybody. This is Tim Markley from K. Altman Law, and you are listening to the Legally Blind Justice Podcast. Schools across the country will be back in session before you know it. But for some of our students, those with special needs, this can be a cause for concern. Our special education team recently hosted a webinar to help understand the IEP process and to break down the various components. This was a great primer for parents and truly helped clarify that complex process. It was so good that we've decided to bring that content here to our podcast. At K. Altman Law, we offer special education advocacy services, and this podcast will discuss some of those services, but with a focus on the IEP process. It'll also provide some other helpful information to parents. To dig deeper into this, Rebecca Sitters, the Director of Special Education here at K. Altman Law, is joined by Ashley Bennett and Nora Schumann. All three are experts in special education and have helped numerous parents and students navigate the complex world of special education. So enjoy the podcast. At the end, if you need special education services, they will provide you contact information to follow up with. Thank you. Um, I would like to introduce our team just um, to let you know who's going to be speaking today and some of the background that we have. Um, I'm Rebecca Sitters. I'm the Director of Special Education Advocacy here at K. Altman Law. I have over 20 years of experience in special education, dealing with low incidence and communication disabilities as a classroom teacher, a district special education supervisor, and also an assistant professor of special education. I have taught, um, consulted for, or mentored educators in basically all settings, uh, general education, resource room, self-contained settings, and therapeutic alternative placements. Um, Our firm is uniquely designed to have our advocates work directly with families, exhausting local level remedies first. Um, And then also we do have the full support of our K-12 attorneys to address state complaints when the need arises. I do have two of our advocates and one of our attorneys here today. Um, So let's go ahead and introduce them. Nora, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you. My name is Nora Schumann and I come to you with 30 plus years of professional experience in various roles in the educational and special education fields. I've been a middle school teacher, assistive technology specialist, and in 2015, I retired as the director of special education of a high school. It is my honor to be able to empower parents through advocacy, and I look forward to being here today along with my colleague, excuse me, my colleagues to teach you a little bit, a little bit about the special education process. Great. Ashley, would you like to go ahead and tell us a little about yourself? Sure. Hi, um, I am Ashley Bennett, and I come to you with over 25 years um, of experience in the field of special education, both as a teacher and an administrator. I have K-12 experience, um, mostly in the behavioral field, so I, I come with a very strong behavior background. Um, I retired about two years ago from the administrative special education uh, role, and now I support and empower families all over the country with their special education needs as an advocate at K. Altman Law. Great. And one of our K-12 attorneys, Nikki Camiso, would you like to introduce yourself? 
Hi, my name is Nikki Camiso. I have over 20 years experience with litigation, special education, and in the education field. Um, and I am happy to be part of the team that's available to help you here at Kay Altman. So our special education advocates do work with families all over the country to help secure a quality education for all children and young adults, regardless of ability or disability. Our division was really born out of the abundant need to address the concerns of families just like you. Um, perhaps you would just to have an expert at the IEP table with you confirming district decisions and processes, um, or perhaps you found yourself in a time of crisis with your child facing suspension, expulsion, or maybe even being recommended for an alternative placement that you disagree with. Um, we interpret evaluation data and provide professional recommendations to the school-based team regarding current gaps in services and programming. Um, we also offer best practices to address your child's individualized needs um, to that team. In addition, we identify violations of ADA, the Americans with Disability Act, Disabilities Act, um, IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, providing a free and appropriate public education for all students. Uh, we do try to bridge the gap between family needs and school procedures and hold schools accountable for doing what is right for children. So one way to do that, we are so glad you're here today. Um, we hope to give you with some important information that you need to be able to be your child's advocate, um, beginning with the IEP process. So to start, um, we always have to kind of start with the basis of an IEP. Um, who qualifies for an IEP? Um, in accordance with IDEA regulation, we do have to answer three very important questions. Does your child have a disability, either a clinical um, medical disability or potentially an evaluation has shown that your child has some sort of an educational disability? Um, but if we can answer yes to that question through documentation with physicians or educational evaluation documentation, um, your child would likely be eligible under one of the categories that's listed here. So we do have 13 specific categories that IDEA recognizes as disability under the Educational Act here. Um, secondarily, not only does your child have a disability, but does that disability adversely affect their access to education? If we can answer yes to that question, we do have one follow-up question that we would need in order to be eligible for an IEP. That third question is, does your child require specially designed instruction? Um, and that's really to access their education, to access the ability to learn along with their non-disabled peers. And as long as we can answer yes to all those questions, your child would be considered to be eligible under IDEA regulations. Okay, so what we're gonna do first is now that we have that established, we're gonna go ahead and go to Ashley, who's gonna describe kind of the timeline of events when we're dealing with IEPs. Go ahead, Ashley. Okay, thank you. Um, so there is a, a rough timeline of events when preparing for your child's IEP meeting. An IEP year and a school year are two different things. A school year typically runs from end of August or September through um, end of May or, or into June. Your IEP year can run anytime through, throughout those months. Um, so there are a few ways that, that people need to start getting ready for that upcoming IEP meeting. Um, and it, it does start several months prior to the annual review date. So um, whatever the expiration date is of your child's IEP, about two months before that, you should expect to get some type of communication that it's time to schedule the meeting. 
Um, so then after that, about three weeks prior to the meeting, it is up to the school team to send out those invitations to all of the members, all of the required members, and we will get to exactly who those required members are here in a little bit. Um, and if you are just being identified as a child with a disability, you must have that IEP meeting within 30 days of identification. Um, so there are some um, IDEA and, and federal timelines that play into that as well. Um, approximately two weeks prior to the IEP meeting, we need to make sure that all of our assessments and information and all of the results are readily available and ready to be explained at the meeting. Um, about a week before the meeting, a draft of the IEP should be developed. Now, technically, um, districts do are not required to provide a draft of the IEP. Most of them do, um, but many, many years ago before technology uh, fed into the process, the IEP was actually literally developed at the IEP table, at the table, at the meeting um, with all of the, the members there. With technology taking over now, it is very possible to have a draft. Most districts do provide a draft. Um, so that would be about about a week prior to the meeting, issue the draft to everybody so that they can kind of prepare to present their information at the meeting. Um, very important is that um, that last step prior to the meeting that the LEA or the case manager, they provide coverage for all necessary members of the IEP meeting so that they may attend. We wanna make sure that that is done ahead of time so there, there is no chance of the necessary members missing the meeting. Thank you. <laughs> um, in addition to the logistics and the planning of the meeting, there are some considerations that the, the school, the team needs to take um, take into when they are planning the, the meeting. Um, first one is the student of transition age. Transition age is either 14 or 16. IDEA, it is 16. Um, a lot of states have 14 as a transition age meaning. What does that mean? That means that that is the age in which students begin participating in their IEP meetings. Um, so they the school is required to start inviting them. Whether or not the student attends is a family decision, um, but it is required that they be invited. So um, do we have any outside agencies that need to be invited? Parents, do you need any accommodations? Do we um, need an interpreter? Do you require um, anything because you may have a, a hearing impairment? Any type of um, physical needs that you need in order to attend the meeting. So we need to take all of that into consideration. Of course, the assessment data that needs to be explained to the team. Um, and of course, we'll go over the student goals. Does the student need additional or fewer supports? We need to look at the data so we can answer that question. Assistive technology consideration, and then again, assure attendance of the required members of the IEP team. And I want to also make it um, very clear that the parent and guardian is a, they are a vital member of the IEP team. Your participation is valued and it is necessary. The school must meet at an agreeable, mutually agreed upon day and time. Um, they, they may send you an invitation with an already assigned day and time for the IEP meeting, but as a parent, you have every right to contact the school and inform them that that day and time does not work for you and you need to reschedule. Um, it, is, it is 
imperative that you are an active role. You play an active role in the development of your child's IEP. Um, and it, unfortunately, sometimes schools do not follow the rules. Um, however, you just need to be aware that an IEP, an IEP meeting cannot be held without the parents in attendance. Great information, Ashley. So something that we get asked a lot, um, and I'd like for the members of our panel just to speak to this a little bit, um, mm -hmm. is so what if the school has kind of failed to pre-plan, right? So we didn't get that two-month notice, that three-week notice, and all of a sudden the school finds out, <laughs> hey, your IEP is due in five days, we have to hold this meeting today, or we are out of compliance, you have to meet today, and the parent can't meet. What should our families do? So there are a couple options um, should that situation arise. Um, and, and many times because of poor planning, sometimes that does happen. First, if the parent is in agreement to meet in that very short time frame um, because they they want to have the meeting as well, they may attend in person via Zoom or via telephone. So those that could be part of the, the considerations as we are scheduling the meeting. Um, that being said, if we are say five days away from the IEP expiring, there can be an extension issued with a prior written notice um, that can be sent to the parents extending that that terminate or not termination, extending the end date of that IEP. Um, so that is something that can be can be done if that should happen. Um, one thing that is also very important for the parents is to brush up on the district, state, and federal laws governing special education. Um, a lot of most states have their own school code. So while IDEA is a federal law and federal guidelines, every state also has their own school code. So there will be some things that could vary from state to state to state, timelines, things like that. Um, also, as you are heading towards planning your IEP meeting or contacting your school or your child's teacher, retain all of your hard copy documents, phone records, everything, anything that reflects that you have attempted to advocate for your child. Um, all of those things will be very important in the future should you have any type of um, any type of disagreement when it comes to the actual scheduling of the IEP meeting and further. Um, and as far as the school responsibilities, here we have our list of the required team members. These are the members who are required in order to hold an IEP meeting and they encompass a full team. So the local education agency, they are the decision maker. That could look like a school principal, a supervisor of special education, a director of special education. Um, very rare instances, the one of those people can assign the LEA to another staff member for said meeting if in the event of an emergency, like a guidance counselor. Um, but it really needs to be that district person who can make decisions regarding resources. They have to be able to say, yes, we can provide this resource and be able to be the one to, to um, qualify that that is true. Of course, the parent has to be there, the student if applicable, special education teacher, general education teacher, and the related service providers. And that means all related service providers, which we will get into exactly who that encompasses. But think speech, OT, PT, those types of supplementary services that your child receives. Um, they must all be in attendance. Not just one can represent all of the related services. They must all be there. Um, 
conclusion of the IEP, at the conclusion of the IEP meeting, the uh, the LEA is required to give you some type of notice of recommended edu educational placement or prior written notice. What are those documents? Those documents pretty much review everything that was gone over at the IEP meeting, and it lays out any changes, any proposals, any denials, um, all of the decisions that were made in that IEP meeting. And then that is presented to the parents so that you can review and make sure that everything that was discussed in that meeting is reflected in that IEP. So that's a very important piece that um, that is not a document you want to sign at the, the very end of the meeting before you've had a chance to review everything. You want to make sure that you review that document to, make, to um, ensure that all of the information that was discussed at the meeting is reflected in that IEP and in the prior written notice. Great. And Ashley, that is one thing that um, we do find a lot of families kind of get a little mixed up with. Um, there's signatures and sometimes there's like these oral yeah. agreements, you know, let's go around the table and and say if we agree to the plan. And then if you give some sort of oral agreement, they mark it as agreement with the IEP. And then it becomes very difficult, not impossible to contest some of the information, placement right. decisions, things like that. Um, but those are, again, that's why we're here is to kind of let you all know as parents what some of the games that mm -hmm. we're noticing and that we're seeing out there are. And that's one of them is that they're hiding some details that maybe aren't quite accurate. Um, maybe they don't quite describe the um, conversations and decisions that were made within the meeting, but now you've either signed that document or you've given some sort of oral agreement to it and they say, oh, it's binding, sorry. Um, now again, at any time we can call a new IEP meeting, right. that's never the end, right? A school may tell you that's so, that's not <laughs> actually true. Um, we can definitely still navigate through that with you. And, and a lot of times that's why parents call us for help is to try to get through situations like that. Like I didn't know I was agreeing, but here they've implemented this for my child and I disagree. Um, so definitely. So I do want to go ahead and take a break here for a second. Um, we do have a question from our chat uh, for the panel here. Um, my child turned 18 and now the school's playing games with his credits. He's at another school that's supposed to have him get his credits that are that that are lower, like a lower number, I'm assuming. Um, but since my son is now 18, they haven't sent me any follow ups on grades or even another IEP. Um, is 18 kind of that that age where there's no IEP or does that still apply? Um, I thought schools were supposed to help until age 22. What can we offer this parent here? So I guess my first response would be you are correct. The age of 18 does not automatically end an IEP. Um, most seniors turn 18 in their senior year. And as you have, have stated, students with IEPs are eligible to be educated to either the age of 21 or in some states it is actually 22. Um, so no, you should still be getting all of the information. Um, now, as far as the credits, of course, that is that can be that can vary from state to state, district to district, the number of credits that are needed to graduate. However, that being said, um, your child's transition plan should be very specific when it comes to the number of credits he is earning, the program he is completing, how and how long he is going to remain in school. So you wanna take a look at that transition plan and make sure it encompasses everything that he is going to be completing as he completes his education, no matter what age he graduates. 
Great. Thanks for answering that. We do have one more question, um, especially revolving around all of the um, the players, kind of the parental responsibilities, schools responsibilities. Um, outside of the required team members, can any other qualified um, authority kind of demystify an IEP for a parent? I love the way that you put that, and I'm actually going to take that one. Um, absolutely. That is, that is exactly what our services are here for. Um, according to IDEA regulation, you, the parent, um, are entitled to have a representative knowledgeable of your child, of a disability, of the situation. They're supporting you at any meeting, any IEP meeting, any 504 meeting, um, even on up through manifestation determinations and the like. Anyone that could help support you in your role to advocate for your child. And again, that's exactly why we're here. When parents have kind of exhausted their knowledge or are just exhausted, if we're being honest, um, <laughs> that's exactly where we come yeah. in. You know, we come in, we kind of take over some of that, some of that back and forth, sometimes some of that contention, some of that disagreement. And really, it's hard. It's hard to understand the law. It's hard to understand how the school is implementing some of these things or where they're finding these procedures and, and they're doing things that maybe don't make sense to you because you know your child best. Um, and so that's exactly where we come in. And again, you can have any advocate, be it a professional, be it any a support person, a grandparent, someone um, to be with you in the in the the time that you would need some support during any of those meetings. Absolutely, great question. All right, so now we're going to go ahead and um, have Nora describe some of the legal components of the IEP to just kind of get into the nitty gritty of what's going on here. Okay, thank you. So here's the meat of it. An IEP is required by law for students who qualify for special education services. It is a legally binding document that is held to high standards uh, through the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Each IEP is written, must conform to the standards set forth by, forth by IDEA and contain a specific set, um, set of parts to be legally compliant. So in every IEP, there are eight legal components of the IEP. In the first section of the IEP is the current educational status. And those are acronyms can be from PLP, PLEP, PLAF, and others. Uh, and what this is, is a record of the student's academic and functional performance, including their strengths and needs, and how their disability is hindering their progress and growth in the general education curriculum and in their setting. It's usually found at the beginning of their IEP. The second part of the IEP contains the goals. And we're gonna get into these sections a little bit more as the presentation goes on. So the second part um, of the IEP contains the goals. Goals must meet the child's needs that result in the child's disability to enable the child to be involved and to make progress in the general education curriculum. The goals must also meet each of the child's other educational needs that result in the child's disability. After the goals and in the third section of the IEP includes the specifics on how and how often progress is monitored regarding the child's goals. Progress should include how and when and how the progress is reported to the parent and guardian. Typically, reporting is sent to the parents with their child's progress reports or report cards. Again, this is a team decision um, usually done at the IEP meetings. 
In the fourth area, that's when the team starts to discuss the related services, the accommodations and the modifications and the services and the support services. According to IDEA, related services should be grounded in best practices, research, and it's there, there to help move that child towards meeting their annual goals. Services and accommodations should help uh, children also participate with their same age non-disabled peers in the least restrictive environment. Section five of the IEP explains how much time the child will receive those services throughout the course of the day and in what setting. So a child receiving services in the general ed and special education settings, sometimes, and this is also known as, are they gonna be receiving those services in a push-in model or in a pull-out service model? It will also include the explanation of the extent of which the child will uh, participate with their non-disabled peers in classes and other extracurricular activities. I know I'm going through this quite quickly, so I apologize for that, but we're gonna talk more about that. Uh, section six is probably the most important for parents to take note of. Um, IEPs are very sensitive, uh, uh, very time sensitive, um, and they're deadline driven. Um, in this section, the IEP is where you will find where the services begin and end and when they go into effect. So if we had an IEP scheduled for today and agreement was made today, the IEP would start tomorrow, 7-12-2023, and it would end 7-11-2024, one day prior to a, full, to a full year, for example. Also in this section, anticipated frequency and location of um, where the other services would be and goals related to the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, location and duration of those services and modifications must be outlined and detailed in this section. Uh, the seventh section is transition planning and um, Ashley discussed this. Um, and this is when a student turns either 14 or 16, um, according to IDEA. Some states, um, just from my experience, Illinois, Indiana, and Florida start at 14. Um, and that's when they start transition planning. Um, and those services include post-secondary goals related to vocational training, independent living and functioning, job training and education. And then the final legal, the final legal component for all IEPs is the recommended learning placement where a child should be included and where educational and related services are delivered to meet the child at their level. This could be a general ed classroom, a special education setting, or another appropriate learning environment agreed upon by the IEP team, okay? In this section are some additional legal um, IEP considerations that are yes and no statements that must be considered and answered by the consensus of the team. This is also that third question um, in the three prongs that uh, Rebecca spoke about earlier today um, that qualifies or that a child has to qualify for or become eligible for an IEP. So these statements um, are to be considered for at every IEP meeting and they lead to others related services if they are answered yes. Numbers one, three, and four are primarily of low incidence. Uh, in, does the child require um, instruction in Braille to access the curriculum? Number three, are, uh, does the child require um, their services to be delivered in ESL or ELL 
to um, ESL or ELL? And four, um, does the child, is the child deaf or hard of hearing? Do they need interpretive services or do they have additional communication needs? So those are the low incidents. If any of those are no, then the team can move on to um, closing out that IEP. Section number three is the most common. So when a team agrees that a child's behaviors are excuse me, significantly interfering with their learning and require additional supports, two things must happen. So when, when behavior becomes the impediment for learning in the general ed curriculum, two things must happen. Um, one, the team must conduct an, a functional behavior assessment or an FBA or actually be in the process or should have already done one. And number two, a behavior intervention plan should be in the it should be done or be in the process of being completed. So children must have one, those two things done if that statement is yes, in fact, that that behavior is impacting their educational process. Great. Thanks, Nora. So one question that we get a lot from parents um, who, you know, call in and are, are asking for advice during a consultation um, or who decide that they need to move forward with advocacy services, we get a lot of disagreement. You know, what happens if in that narrative, so you talked about the PLAF or the PLEP, it's called something different in every right. district, um, but basically where that current level of functioning is described. What happens if, you know, in that narrative, as a parent, you disagree with kind of the picture that's being painted of your child? What do you do? Can that be amended? Can they ask that that be changed? Does it have to be documented somewhere? Like, what is that? What does that look like? So it can be accurately reflecting your, you know, perspective for your child. So I think in that situation, there are uh, there are several options. Um, if a parent disagrees with any of the information presented in that present level section, they of course can ask for ask to see the documentation that was used in order to create that narrative. Um, that narrative should be created off of hard data mm -hmm. that was collected throughout the IEP year. Um, so that's one way. The, the next thing parents can do is if they are still in disagreement, even if the data does support the narrative um, and the, the parent still does not um, does not agree or does not necessarily want those statements in the present levels. Uh, there is a parental concern section, and in that section, um, when parents note their concerns, it, it is not only a place to list the parental concerns. The IEP team needs to respond to those concerns. Mm -hmm. So when the right. parental concerns are listed in that section, the IEP team must say, this is how we're responding to that concern. So those are the, probably the two um, most effective ways to, to discuss any type of disagreement with any of the, the narratives that are in the present level section. Great. Thanks yeah. for that, Ashley. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I also do want to add here before we go on to our goals is that every IEP, so the reason we have these kind of legal considerations, one is to have a standardization, obviously, according to IDEA regulation, um, but then also just in general, every IEP that's written from every team all over the country should be kind of stranger ready, right? You should be able to take an IEP from, mm -hmm. for example, Minnesota, and you should be able to land in Colorado, and that team should be able to read through all of those portions that Nora just explained to get a snapshot, to get a picture of exactly right. what that student 
um, kind of the present level of functioning, exactly what those goals are, exactly what the student needs, and how that how that data has been utilized to inform decision making. Um, so that's kind of why we have that standardized process. So it's kind of ready to move at any minute um, and follow that student as a complete picture to what they need moving forward. Okay, so now let's go ahead and go back to Ashley to discuss some goals um, as far as that section on the IEP. Sure. Um, okay, so we call them SMART goals because, um, of course, we have to have more acronyms in the <laughs> field of special education. Um, but they really, the SMART goals really do embody all of the things that a measurable annual goal should have. It should be specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time bound. Um, so those four things should be in every single IEP goal that is written, no matter what the area of disability is. Um, so in the next slide, we will show you kind of um, a poorly written goal versus a goal that is written well for your child. So I, I took the area of reading and a, an inappropriate goal, Johnny will improve his reading skills. Sure, we want all kids to improve their reading skills. Um, this is something that can be said for every student in school. Um, so it, it's not very, it's not specific to a child with a disability. Take it and switch it to a SMART goal, and it, it does exactly what the SMART goal lists. Um, the only part that is missing is it says by um, the time frame, which is like the first block. That It is understood that an IEP is an annual document. Some schools and some districts will write them and say by the end of this IEP year or by such and such a date, whatever, by July 10th of 2024, it's not really necessary because it is an annual document, but that is part of the, the SMART goal so that we know the time frame. Um, but Johnny will demonstrate his awareness of letter sound relationships by identifying the letter and their corresponding sound with 100% accuracy on four out of five trials measured quarterly. So that goal encompasses all of the information that you should be getting regarding your child's progress. Um, if it's measured quarterly, if, if schools are on a quarterly schedule and that and report cards go out four times a year, your IEP progress should go out four times a year. If it's trimesters, then of course it would be on um, a trimester schedule. But that four out of five trials also lets you know that in every quarter, your child should be getting at least five probes into their reading goal. Sometimes it's more, sometimes we use um, curriculum-based assessments, sometimes we use work samples, but that goal kind of encompasses all of the information that should be collected um, throughout, throughout the IEP year. Um, and that is not only something that um, is required because we just say it's required, it is in IDEA. Um, IDEA is very specific that they require progress monitoring of the IEPs. Um, they um, are very specific that you need to re you need to progress monitor how the the child is progressing, and then you need to also state in the goal when those periodic reports will be um, will be taken and provided to you. Um, so if you are not getting those IEP progress reports, please make sure that you contact your school and you let them know that you you need to get those progress reports. Um, this last slide here is just basically, it is 
you know, the, the same information in a checklist. So this will help you know exactly how the data is being collected, who is collecting the data. It's very important that we know who is collecting the data because um, it could be the classroom teacher, it could be the special education teacher during a special ed probe. It could be one of the related services providers. Um, this is all information that by the way the goal is written, you should be able to, to get the information straight from that goal. Um, is it clear how the student will be demonstrating the skills or behaviors or knowledge targeted in the IEP? Um, and also, are, if there are objectives, is that appropriate? Um, and is it clear how the data will be compiled and analyzed and who will be responsible for doing this? Um, at the end of the IEP year, that's what that meeting is all about. You wanna analyze the data that has been collected over the last IEP year and make decisions moving forward regarding how your child is best going to make progress. Great, thanks Ashley. So something that we do hear a lot from parents is what happens when their child has either achieved their goal after the first quarter. So say they've only had their goal for a very short time, they've achieved it, so then what happens? Does that, does that goal just sit? Like what, how are they working towards that in special education for the remainder of the year? What do they do? And then likewise, what happens if they don't achieve their goals? Do those just roll over year to year or could you just speak to both of those situations? Sure. Sure. Um, so in either case, of course, everything is a team decision. Um, so if you're met with the situation that your child has only had a goal for two marking periods and they have achieved it, fantastic. Um, the case manager gets in touch with the parent and should say, here's where we are. Here's the data I have collected. I have data to support that this goal has been achieved. And then it is something that could be handled without a full IEP meeting, that, but that would have to be approved by the parent and it would have to be reflected in a prior written notice and then also in the IEP document. You can agree to remove that goal if it has been achieved. If it is something that is scaffolded and you need to move to the next step and you're hoping to achieve a, um, a higher level, then you can agree to just increase that goal and, and move on. Um, on the flip side, if you are, you come to, you're at the annual meeting and there has been little to no progress made on that annual goal, um, that, it, that again, same type of conversation. Is the goal inappropriate? What makes it inappropriate? Is there some type of supplementary aid or service that needs to be implemented in order for the child to achieve that goal? Um, so these are all conversations that are made as a team. There is nothing wrong with coming together as a team and saying this goal is just not appropriate. We're not getting the data that we need to support that this that your child is ready for this right now. Um, it's it's a discussion. It's a it's a fluid document. Changes can be made at any time. Um, so it's there's nothing wrong with coming together as a team and saying we need to make some changes. Great. Thanks, Ashley. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go over and um, take a look at some varying supports and services. Nora, do you want to quickly kind of walk us through what some of those related services look like? You are on mute, Nora. Thank you. That slides beautifully into those different types of supports and services in the classroom. So what special education is, is really specific, specially designed instruction. And it involves adapting the content, the methodology, and the delivery of instruction within the classroom. And adapting the instruction is what the child is taught and how a child works at school. That is what 
SDI is. Um, and what related services means, it's the transportation and how it's developed, how it's correcting it, and what the other services are required to assist a child with that disability. And there's three areas that's that IDEA covers. Those are those supplementary aids and services, the program modifications, or the supports for the school staff, and those accommodations in large assessments. So related services, and this is not an exhaustive list. Um, th these things benefit our students um, no matter where they're serviced at. So we have speech and language, we have audiological services, we have in interpreting services, psych services, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, to name a few. We have counseling services and rehab services, orientation and mobility services for our students who are visually impaired, um, teaching them the basically the lay of the land of the school so they can be more independent. Um, medical services, school health services, and our school nurse nursing services for our students with diabetes, epilepsy, um, syncope, uh, that, that's the, um, um, when they, when they faint, um, you know, and then we, our social work services for our mental health uh, students, um, you know, and some of those that I really liked out of here are um, our adaptive physical education. So PE, um, and if if uh, students aren't um, like volleyball, instead of doing volleyball, the traditional way we do volleyball with a tennis net and um, balloons uh, for our physically um, handicapped students or recreational services so they can still participate with their non-disabled peers, but in a different kind of way, which is a little bit um, easier for them. Again, the school health, um, school health and nursing services, transportation is a big thing um, so that they can get to their neighborhood schools and be with their non-disabled and their neighborhood friends. And then a student who has a disability, is required by law to be included in the general education setting to the maximum extent possible. That's the most powerful supplementary aid or services or service um, for our students to be with their friends, to be with their neighborhood, to be in their community, um, to be a part of that. Um, that's the most powerful and positive thing. And to be there and to be accepted. Um, in, in idea, for them to be in their community, do they need adaptive equipment? Do they need assistive technology to access that curriculum? Do we need training for our staff and our students and our parents? Do we need peer tutoring at the school, one-on-one -on -one aids to access? So um, there's, and these again are not, uh, these are not exhaustive lists. Um, the more we can be creative is um, the best way and the more open our staff can be. So accommodations versus modifications, two big um, things, two different things. So accommodations, it changes how a student learns the material versus modifications changes what. So if you think of accommodations of, of how a student learns, it's how they're learning, how it's being presented to them versus a modification of what level it's on. Um, so I'm going to go back to the accommodation side. The example is allowing a student who has trouble writing, who's trouble writing um, his answer, allow him to give his answer orally. You're not judging his, you're not judging his writing, you're judging his the content that he has in his head. So say you're in science class and um, you're taking a test on the, the nine planets 
and you want him to tell you everything, you want little Johnny to tell you everything he knows about Jupiter in a paragraph, but writing writing it down is taxing. But you know he, he has it up here. So you take him aside and you say, Johnny, tell me everything you know about Jupiter. Tells you everything he knows about Jupiter. Give him the give him that the grade on that. You're not testing if he can make A, B, and C. You're testing if he knows the content. So that that's an accommodation that you can give him. So a modification would be if he needed to read something about Jupiter, but he's a fourth grader, but he's reading on the first grade level, and he's in a fourth grade class because that's where he is chronologically. You would give him a first grade reader on Jupiter, but his classmates are reading at the fourth grade level. He's reading at the first grade level, but he's doing the same work. He's doing the same thing. That's a modification. 504 plan versus an IEP. 504 plans really cater to the, those accommodations where it's not going to change the validity of the curriculum. It's going to just be accommodating it of how a student learns versus if they need modifications to the curriculum, it's going to be an IEP where they're going to have to modify and the validity of the curriculum is going to be a little bit different. That's the difference between your 504 plan and your IEP. Great, thanks for that, Nora. So one question that we do get um, pretty often around this kind of um, provided services and, and all of those things, I know that you mentioned a one-on-one -on -one aid. Um, so there, there is a lot of, there are a lot of families who are basically being told that their student requires more than what um, the Gen Ed classroom can offer them. Um, and because of, you know, teacher shortages, because of district issues, because of whatever, you can kind of name your issue there. Um, the school really wants to move the student to an alternative setting to kind of be just with special education students. And I know we're going to get to the point where we're talking about continuum of services here in just a second. Mm -hmm. um, but can you talk a little bit about when is a one-on-one -on -one aid appropriate? When do we try kind of that service? And, and is that a parent request? Should the school be recognizing that they need additional support? When is an appropriate time to include that as a related service provider? Well, having a one-on-one -on -one aid is a pretty restrictive um, placement, for lack of a better word. Um, if they're going from a general ed setting to a one-on-one -on -one aid, there's there's a space in there that you're missing. So is there another classroom that they can be in? Is there a resource? Is there a para that can be brought into that classroom that could be the classroom aid that can help that student when, is, when he or she is helping other students that are going to need that same amount of help? So you have to look at the continuum of services. You can't go from point A to point Z. You have to see what else is in that middle. And you don't want to jump from, you know, because it's kids don't want to be pointed out as different at any age. So I would be very careful to do that. And when you're putting a student in a more restrictive setting, i.e. the one-on-one -on -one aid, you have to really show a lot of data that they need that one-on-one -on -one because it is a very expensive model as well, coming from that school standpoint. Um, so I would really look and see what other what other services can you provide before you get to that one-on-one -on -one aid. Good. Yeah, thanks for including that. I know that we'll get to this in um, the continuum of services um, here with Ashley. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like, those continuum of services? So all school districts are required to offer a continuum of service. And what does that look like? 
the the very least restrictive with no supports um, is is the general education class. That's where all students should start out. Um, and we want to see, you know, what is their success level in that least if that is their least restrictive environment. It doesn't mean that the general ed class is the least restrictive environment for every student. Um, and we go all the way down to the very bottom, which is that alternative setting. Um, so what can happen in between? We can try some co-teaching classes. We can try some special education classes, which is usually a smaller setting. Special ed teacher is the um, teacher of record, and that way they can work with the modifications and accommodations right within the classroom with the student. This is not an all or nothing, um, all or nothing continuum. We can uh, do a combination of settings. We can try, um, you know, having that student 100% in the general ed classroom, and then that's where that one-on-one -on -one support comes in. Is that their least restrictive environment? There are many reasons that someone could use a one-on-one -on -one support in the general education class. Um, so again, all districts are required to offer that continuum of service. And um, that is a decision, of course, made by the IEP team. Everything is a team decision, and the parents are a valuable member of that team, so they absolutely can weigh in on this continuum of service. Okay, um, the decision-making process at the IEP. Again, everything is a team decision. Um, all decisions are made as a team. The goal, of course, is in every IEP meeting is to allow the student to access FAPE, their free and appropriate public education. That is what every student has the right to. Um, and sometimes it just, it, it takes a while to get to a plan of how we're going to get there. Um, and that's where everything that we've just talked about comes into play and how we ensure that, that, that any student can access FAPE. Um, parents and schools have the right to resolve any disagreements in the following ways. So let's say you're at the end of the, of the IEP meeting. All of the information has been presented. The school district says to you, this is our offer of faith. This is what we are offering you. Parents don't agree. Um, parents are allowed to disagree. And there are steps that you can take to, um, to try to come to an agreement when that does happen. There are several processes that are offered by each state. Most states offer what is called a state-facilitated IEP. Some states do not, um, but that is when a, an objective third party from the State Department of Education will attend an IEP meeting with you and kind of be that that objective person to, um, to kind of help the team come to some type of agreement. There is also mediation and then the due process. Mediation would be, of course, the next step after. Um, and the due process complaint would be if there is no resolution has been able to, to um, come to throughout all those other processes. Yeah, so thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Nora, for sharing all that information. We do have one um, question that um, is remaining here in our chat. Mm -hmm. I do want to make sure we give place to that. So the question is, do we see reverse inclusion in schools in the USA? Um, and so that's really interesting. So inclusion is kind of talking about what we um, did with our little triangle a few slides ago, basically saying that 
a least restrictive environment, we always kind of start with that general education setting, and then we move very slowly as needed to a more restrictive setting. Um, and then once we have supports in place, we try to move back up as quickly as we can, obviously within the confines of one's um, disability or progress at, that they're making at the time. Um, so kind of on the flip side, so we mm -hmm. want to make sure that our special education students are included into general education practices. Um, and that is kind of a hallmark of uh, American education system, and it has been for about the last 20 years. Um, on the flip side, if we are looking at reverse inclusion, it would be basically utilizing special education classes and including general education students into that. Um, we are seeing districts become more cognizant of kind of universal design, universal needs of all students, um, being able to um, provide all students with kind of one level of intervention and then kind of working through those tiers, if you will. Um, but in general, I would say, and, and feel free to jump in here, Ashley or Nora, in my mm -hmm. professional experience yeah. and with the families yeah. that we're working with in schools, we're working with all over the country, there still is a great divide that exists with students yeah. who require special education education, they are kind of set to a side and we have to figure out how to work them into the general education population. And it's very disconcerting. It shouldn't be the way that it is. But unfortunately, especially in United States compulsory education, this is where we are. Feel free to add anything you want there, ladies. No. Yeah, I, I think that that's very true. Um, and just but just for everyone's knowledge, every state does have an actual formula when it comes to planning um, co-taught classes or um, special education supported classes. Um, I, every percentage is a little bit different, but it's typically about 20%. So when you have a co-taught yeah. class, you really don't want to have more than 20% of the kids in that class with an IEP, because right. then it turns into just that, the reverse inclusion. Um, however, that being said, the inclusion model and the COTOP model, the research shows that that is the most effective model for students to learn in, both students with and without disabilities. So when it is done appropriately and when it is done correctly, it is the most successful model. Um, but we, as a country, ha still have a lot of work to do to to get oh, it yeah. to where it is effective for all students to learn. If you do find that you need additional help, obviously we've given a lot of information today. Um, we've answered lots of questions today. Um, but ultimately, if you do find yourself in a position where you need an advocate, you need somebody to come to the table with you, somebody who will be honest with you. Um, and a lot of times I do tell our clients, you know, I won't tell you that I will absolutely achieve this end result for you. I can't say that, um, but I can tell you that I will absolutely 100% be honest with you from the beginning. I will look at the data. I'll look at the evaluation. I will provide my professional recommendation both to you and the school-based team. You can know that you can trust the expertise that's provided by the K. Altman Law Advocacy staff. And that's something that really sets us apart. And, and really, that's the service that we love to provide to all of you. We want to make sure um, that students are being educated. Um, and, and beyond that, that families are being listened to. We want to make sure we're holding schools accountable for doing the right thing for students. 
One of the last questions we have, my six-year-old child just got an IEP in autism um, with three hours in special ed setting with non-academic behavior goals. We were concerned that she would be missing general ed academic instruction, and we requested the FBA. After the FBA is done, can she meet her behavior goals in the general ed setting within that general ed class, or does it have to be with that, with that three hours in special ed? Ashley, do you want to address oh, yeah. that? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Mm -hmm. So um, after the FBA is completed, and if it leads to the writing of a behavior intervention plan, when you look at those specific goals, they're they're going to determine through that procedure, the FBA and the behavior intervention plan, they're going to determine whether or not your daughter needs specially designed instruction in the area of behavior. So if that is the case we need to look at how much specially designed instruction. So if they're saying right now three hours, I'm assuming out of the general ed environment, and that's where they want to deliver this instruction, then that can be any instruction. That can be academic, that can be behavioral, it can be social, emotional. Um, but to the other part of your question, is it possible to get that instruction in the general ed setting? Absolutely, it depends on how the behavior intervention plan is written who is going to be collecting the data, who is going to be there to make sure that the intervention plan is implemented with fidelity. Um, those are some very important pieces when you're determining in which environment is that instruction going to take place. Um, if they do need a great deal of direct instruction in those areas, it is probably necessary for them to be, um, to be pulled out to get that specific one-on-one -on -one direct instruction. However, when it comes to the generalization of those skills, that's when you move to they, you know, your daughter will be returned back to the general ed setting, right. but with a very specific plan and very specific data right. to be collected so that we can make sure that those skills are being generalized. Yeah. Um, so that just some things to kind of look out for. And that is definitely one of the things that we help with. Um, when these FBAs are conducted, there is so much data to be presented um, and so much data to consider when writing that behavior intervention plan. And you want to make sure that that plan is implemented with fidelity, which um, it, unfortunately, a lot of schools, um, they they kind of, I, I don't want to say they, they skimp, but it, it is very difficult sometimes to implement behavior intervention plans with fidelity. And one of the things that we really have expertise in is looking at those plans and being able to say, here's what you need to make sure it's implemented with fidelity and correctly so that your child can grow from it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, like I said, if you do need additional assistance or you do have kind of more what ifs, you know, specific individualized questions um, or information that you would require regarding your own special education needs, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Um, our number here, 888-984-1341. Again, that's done with the team that you see right here. Um, so you'll basically tell your story and we'll let you know kind of, you know, where we hear potential violations or maybe where we could offer support. There's always work to be done and we're happy to be that trusted resource to provide it for you. All right. Thank Thanks, you, everyone. Guys. Bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.